Okay, we are live. Uh, thank you for joining us for another Hagley History Hangout. My name is Ben Spohn, oral historian at the Center for the History of Business, Technology, and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library in Wilmington, Delaware. During these History Hangouts, we'd like to introduce you to some of the fascinating research being done using historical collections at Hagley. Uh, one such scholar who's used these collections, as well as many other in our greater Philadelphia area, is Kevin Ryder, who works in planetary sciences in Houston, Texas, and has recently uh, completed and published a book on Philadelphia's Pencoid Ironworks, Forging Along the Schuylkill River. And I know I was especially excited to see this personally, because I always... Uh, relish the opportunity to cover industry along the Schuylkill River. Uh, no offense to the Brandywine. So, Kevin, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ben. So I guess first and foremost, uh, why this particular topic? What, what drew you to, uh, I mean, not just history in general, but you know, this in particular? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I guess... Um, mainly, or what uh, the initial driver was uh, uh, inspired by my parents who who study uh, gene genealogy. They're really serious about genealogical research and have been for um, decades. And both of them have, have managed to assemble um, long uh, histories of uh, different generations going, you know, going way back into the 1600s and even uh, tracing lines back in into Europe. Uh, but the, uh, the, uh, some of the writer family uh, genealogy uh, go, ha, uh, goes back to the Philadelphia area um, in the 16, 1600, late 1600s. And um, my father has put together detailed histories of, of some of those generations. Um, and so it's some of the land around the Pencoid Ironworks was uh, owned or inhabited by uh, members of the Ryder family and, the, and their relatives and so forth. Um, so a lot of the documents, I think that my my father assembled and information he, he did uh, before the internet, you know, by visiting libraries and so forth around the area, uh, he he was from he he grew up in uh, Philadelphia, and um, so he has a, a closer connection to those areas than than I do, where I whereas I grew up in Pittsburgh. Um, but as as he assembled these uh, histories and shared them with us. Uh, kids, we um, we had lots of questions, and uh, there was a particular generation, uh, Walter Ryder, who um, worked at Pencoid Ironworks, and we heard lots of stories about him. Um, he he lived from uh, uh, the mid 1800s to uh, 1933, and um, so a lot of our a lot of our immediate family had stories that they passed along about Walter and uh, my uncle my uncle Walter uh, named for named for Walt the other Walter uh, the Pencoid Walter he um, recalls stories of riding in a train uh, with his uh, grandfather the two Walters along the length of the Pencoid plant uh, going from one building to the next and so th this is kind of a neat memory and um, naturally, we we I started, and I guess we, you know, in general, our family started thinking, well, wonder what happened in those buildings. What were the, what was going on in those buildings? Why would Walter have such a privilege to have a train? Uh, first of all, and then uh, you've seen panoramic photos, I think, of the plant. Um, the Pencoid plant, it's long. It's a, it was located along uh, maybe half a mile stretch of the Schuylkill River, a long, narrow strip of land. And uh, the buildings are lined up along the length of that, that strip. Um, anyway, so 
that sort of got me curious, wondered, you know, what what did Walter do? Uh, what did what did Pencoid make? What what happened in all of those buildings? And uh, so I started poking around and uh, learned, tried to learn a little bit about what they did, um, and re really uncovered, to me at least, I mean, uh, who who knew nothing or next to nothing, really uncovered a lot of interesting details. A lot of what I found were uh, initially in engineering journal articles describing um, bridges. Um, most commonly, but also uh, something I didn't expect to find was that Pencoid had made structural steel for some buildings, for example, in New York City that at the time were the tallest buildings and um, some other structures that at the time had the widest span, uh, freestanding free span. And um, for example, I think the... Um, there was a train shed in Jersey City that fell into that category. And uh, by today's standards, it's not very impressive. I think it may have been 300, 310 feet. And, um, uh, uh, but that was a big deal back then. And uh, so as I discovered these kinds of um, facts, I was uh, sort of putting them aside and creating files and then um, realized that we, that, that, I don't know, after a few years of finding sources like this, I realized this is a, this is a great story. And I wondered why, uh, why hasn't this story been told previously? So, uh, and I couldn't find general information. I'd find little bits of pieces here and there. So af after a few years, I think I realized that there was a chance to, assemble a lot of this information in, into kind of a general history and overview of the plant um, and, and the company and what they did, uh, what kinds of products they made and where you might find them or where, you know, where were they located and things like that. So it was uh, kind of unfolded over a several year time period. Um, I. I might pause here. There's a little background noise I can stop if that's uh, something that's uh, okay with you, Ben. Oh, uh, certainly, certainly. I wasn't picking it up, but yeah, by all means. Okay, just I think it might get louder. So let me hold on a sec. I'll be right back. Sure. All right, we're back. Uh, hey. Thanks everyone for, for bearing with us. That's or the, the perils and pleasures of doing this program as close to live as we can. So would it be fair to say that in uh, your motivations for writing this, that it started off as a way to kind of explore your family history, but then became uh, this wider project of, well, my family's involved, but there's more to this story too, or there's more to the story that needs to be told for everybody too, I guess might be a better way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, it's really both, both of those. So at first I was trying to learn more about the family, uh, maybe appreciate more what, uh, what Walter Ryder uh, did, what his role was at the plant and uh, how, how he, how that uh, affected his life and, and our, his family and our, our family at that time period. And then I think at some point I realized, wow, there's a lot of information here that um, would be potentially of interest to a lot of people still living in the area. Maybe a lot of uh, people or families like, like ours who um, remember a connection to the plant or know that their family was involved in uh, some capacity at the plant and would like to know more about it. Um, maybe we're all in the same boat. We, uh, there might be families who are really interested in what happened there and um, what, what Pencoy did, what they accomplished. And um, so it might be of greater interest to, to more people. I think the plant, um, employed 
several thousand people at its peak. So there are potentially a lot of uh, families who are in still in the uh, in the area there along the Schuylkill who who might have connections. Right. And before we get into some of the uh, structural uses of pencoid steel, I am curious to know, and I know some of my colleagues are going to roll their eyes at me having uh, trains on the brain, but what did your family member do that he had his own train? Well, <laughs> yeah, so, so I, yeah, we did, I just sort of uh, mentioned that, but didn't explain. So he, um, yeah, Walt, Walter was uh, initially um, a mechanic and worked in the machine shop. Um, I think he started there around 1883. And um, at, at that sort of uh, entry level uh, uh, position, uh, he was um, 16 or 17. So just a youngster. And uh, I think over time, his role changed, uh, probably gained certain skills. Uh, and in fact, um, my father has uh, some of his uh, technical books that he that uh, he inherited through the generations, uh, you know, a sm small set of books, but the books are titled or have, uh, you know, cover the topics of uh, gearing and um, uh, steam, uh, boi boiler, um, boilers, a lot, a lot of, uh, you know, kinds of topics that would be really central to running an industrial plant like that. Um, and so his ultimate um, title, I mean, when at the time of his retirement was uh, superintendent of uh, motive power. So that it's an interesting title. I think it was kind of a common title back then, but uh, I mean, in, in a, a, lot, a lot of different factories. Um, but I think uh, my father explains it as uh, what I think maybe, maybe he heard his brother or his father uh, mentioned this at some point, but um, when somebody asks what, what is motive power, what did Walter do? And, and um, the answer was, well, basically anything that moves, he's in charge of anything, everything that moves. <laughs> and so that in a plant like that, that's a, that covers a lot of ground with uh, all the equipment that operated in, in the different buildings. So I think uh, he, you know, at the end of his career, he oversaw a lot of different kinds of equipment and had to um, make sure it kept operating. Um, so that maybe that gives you a, an indication. Uh, I think he, because the, the plant was so long, he needed a way to get uh, from building to building quickly at times. And, uh, train and maybe numerous times during the day. So maybe a train made sense. <laughs> right. Do you know if it was a, a narrow gauge specialty thing or? I think it was. Yeah. So sorry. Uh, uh, the details may start to become a little <laughs> fuzzy uh, with, with when you get into questions like that. But I think I recall that it was a narrow gauge um, engine. Yeah. That type of thing is always fun to get into. <laughs> it is. It is. Um, and actually, you know, I, I, you just jogged my memory. One of the things I was hoping in the research is to uncover a photo or some, uh, a photo that had Walter in it or um, some document that mentioned him or, or had, um, had his name associated with uh something specific and I, I you know I couldn't find that such a document or image but it I think that was a sort of a secondary driver for the research too just trying to find something like that something uh tangible um but uh it led to a lot of interesting discoveries so that I think that was also that was satisfying in the end just to know more about the plant and, and their capabilities Right. I'm sorry you haven't been able to find anything, though. Uh, 
where would you like to go next? We could, uh, I, I think we have two sort of uh, branching options here that we could either get into some of the products that Pencoid made, or we could talk a little bit about some of the end products of their steel. Cause I remember you had some images that you wanted to share today too. Yeah. Um, so maybe, maybe it makes sense. Um, I can show some images of the, so one, one thing I mentioned earlier, there's a, uh, there's a, a panoramic photo, or they, they took panoramic photos of the plant. Um, and I, uh, one thing I like to do is show, um, just quickly run through what, what each building is and what they did in those buildings. And that, that's a good way of appreciating, I think, uh, what happened at the plant. And, um, and then I think if I later talk about uh, various, um, sources or uh, something of particular interest that I uncovered, um, it can be put into perspective easier having that little um, background on the plant. So I, I can I can do that if you if you would like to now. Certainly let's do let's go yeah. for it. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's see here. Um, pull this up here and There we go, that should be full screen there. So oh, just a quick uh, photo actually uh, that shows, uh, so these group photos were pretty common, I think um, at the plant and there were so many people working there, they would have subsets of employees. And I think this one must've had to do with uh, either the machine shop or, um, or uh, motive power. Maybe there was a motive power group, I'm not sure. Uh, but this, I've circled uh, Walter's photo there, um, taken, I think this was taken around uh, 1915, roughly, time time frame. And um, so anyway, I th just thought it would be nice to show a <laughs> show, uh, group photo there, there that has Walter. But let me, uh, let me go ahead here to, um, let's see. Uh, sorry, let's see. Um, Ah, uh, here. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about the skipping through there. So the, at the top of this uh, image, you can see the panoramic photo, and these fo these photos were um, were taken er every few years. I think the plant was impressive, in to me at least, in that uh, how it could stay current with the various technology that became available over uh, many decades, and uh, so the plant was always changing. This particular image, I think, is around the turn of the century, maybe around 1900, uh, and it gives a, an indication of what happened So, uh, in each of these buildings. So um, if you start in the upper left there, uh, oops, I inadvertently moved ahead there. So there on the left, uh, circled there with the red line, is the, the steel mill portion of the plant. And uh, so this was where it all began. They they made steel um, at the far far end. There was um, there were uh, ten open hearth uh, furnaces at the in the steel mill, and they had a unique uh, tilting uh, furnace as well that was operational um, in that mill. And that's that's pictured. Well, the ladle for that is pictured in the lower left there. Um, the and the the largest photo here show is it, a view along the length of the steel mill. Looking down, you can see some of those uh, crucibles turned on their side. I think this must have been clean. They were cleaning out some of these crucibles. And the reason I like this photo is because there are people for scale, <laughs> and you can see the size of that crucible on the right. There, that's being. I think it's being cleaned out or or somehow uh, serviced there. But uh, you get a sense for the scale of the plant, how long the steel mill itself was, and what the conditions were like inside. But that was the very start of the of the plant there in the down down river closest to Philadelphia. As you as you move um, up up river, uh, the next big building was a hammer mill, and this is where they they had a steam hammer 
and a 20 ton steam hammer installed there in 1889. You can see a photo on the left with some people again for scale. Those are the best photos for me. Where do you, when you see a person, uh, just to give you a sense of scale of what was happening. Uh, and then on the right is an image from inside as well with an ingot being um, dropped into a furnace for uh, processing. And uh, this was also, I think, in the in the hammer mill area, right? They would do that right before uh, working or rolling out the material, which happened next. And so the roll, there were a lot of rolling mills um, at Pencoid. This is the uh, first. So the idea here is that they would roll uh, roll out uh, either rods or um, um, uh, some other uh, shapes into uh, or some other you know rough, rough shapes and, and roll them into more specific shapes like you'd see on the right there, whether it's a beam or an angle or even T's, and um, they the rolls could be swapped in and out to um, that allowed these shapes to be produced. And there's an image at the bottom there showing a, one of the um, one of the steel shapes uh, about to be rolled into the um, rolled through the rollers there that are kind of in the uh, center of the image. Uh, so the roll the rolling mills, uh, so these these shapes were uh, these structural shapes were what Pencoid really became famous for. The shapes could be used in, in construction of buildings and also construction of bridges and uh, sort of became a specialty of theirs. And so there, so I'll come back to rolling mills in a minute because there were a couple different kinds. Uh, but one of the things that these shapes, these shapes would have to be straightened and cut and sheared at various steps in the process. And here are a couple of, you know, these heavy pieces of equipment that were utilized to do some of this. That was uh, the next building along the length. And then the next length here is, a, again, more rolling mills. Um, and these were specialized, specialized for whatever work they had on the docket at that particular point. So they could um, pull, put in different rolls they needed to make various shapes for whatever project they were working on. And then finally, uh, the lar really the largest building of all of these, I think, uh, maybe with the exception of the steel mill, was this uh, bridge shop that was put together. Within the bridge shop, they had all kinds of specialty equipment uh, for uh, riveting and drilling and uh, cutting of um, mass production of bridge parts. <laughs> and so this was an impressive structure alone, just the building alone. You can see its size up there. Um, and then finally, at the far end, uh, it was a hydraulic forge. And it was here that they could make, uh, they could take a, a bar of either wrought iron or steel and um, compress it in this uh, specialized forge into a, an I-bar shape, which is the kind of schematically illustrated there in the center from top to bottom. They had these uh, hydraulic presses that would uh, move the dies and form form the soft uh, iron or steel into this shape, and then be able to put a, um, a an eye uh, shape into or punch a hole through that through that eye shape at the, the rounded shape at the end. And I've just included a few um, images of the eye bar on various structures that are still standing today, just to show where. Where it fits into the big picture of, of a bridge structure, and um, then finally, this is the last image of, of this um, panoramic shot. But the shipping yard was a big deal. What you know, when you had all these parts produced, uh, you needed a place to store them temporarily, and before they were shipped off. So a large portion of this uh, um, this end of the plant was used for uh, storage, and it was adjacent to the rail line and there you can see an I-beam on top of a rail car at the upper left as an example. That was 1912, but all you know, all of these products are are lined up there ready to, to be shipped out to various uh, projects. And let's see, I think, yeah, that was that was that was it. So that gives you a sense for what um what happened in each of these buildings. And um it was 
an industrial assembly line. And like I mentioned uh, earlier, it it changed over the years um, from its original start in the 1850s uh, was much smaller operation, shorter shorter operation. And then by the by the time of some of these photos around the turn of the century or 1910, 1920, um, it had filled, they had basically filled the land, the available land with um, different parts of the operation. So yeah, that's a brief foundation, I think, for <laughs> what happened there, uh, what happened at Pencoy. Um, Excuse me. Well, thank you for providing that. Um, yeah. Say so those diagrams in particular were really wonderful to have. I wish I had had something so nice prepared for me uh, the first time I was tackling uh, industrial history and oh. <laughs> learning how a steel mill worked. Uh, if I could ask one quick question, though, yeah. uh, with uh, Pencoid's foundation and getting into the sort of the era of steel production at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th. Uh, did they face any particular uh, roadblocks on the way to making that transition? Because I know as you get out uh, in Philadelphia, but also into the countryside, uh, you can start to find some of these uh, very, very old uh, iron production sites that uh, are even older than Pencoid. And by the 1880s, they just have to give up they can't maintain uh their competitive edge in a way that well pencoid obviously was able to yeah yeah that's that's interesting yeah i think there there are a couple of factors uh that that are um that play into that uh, so one of them is um uh pencoid and and various other uh companies around the the, the atlantic coast region there in general had developed or um, perfected uh, the making of wrought iron. And um, wrought iron was used, well, for example, um, a lot of the um, Philadelphia uh, Centennial Exposition uh, buildings were, were made of wrought iron and um, that they, they were large structures. Um, and that was 1870s, 75, 76 time frame. Um, that's about the time when demand for steel uh, for for iron and steel was really growing. And uh, one of the limitations, I think, was that wrought wrought iron, although it was strong and uh, the process was well understood, the volume of material that could be produced was still relatively small. And uh, one of the advantages I think of steel making is that uh, it could be produced in a larger quantities, larger volumes, and and could be, uh, could allow them to keep up with the demand uh, that was that was needed. I, I think uh, so many, there were so many buildings and structures made in 1895 to 1905 time timeframe, I think, that's when uh, steel making um, really just took off. Um, so, but uh, you know that that's part of the. I think that's part of the answer. The other part is that uh, there were a lot of companies that could do this um, make making of wrought iron, and then perhaps also making the transition to steel making. Pencoid, if you look at the records, they had the greatest uh, volume, produ uh, production volume capability in that time frame. Uh, but there were a couple of other really significant companies as well. Uh, Edgemore was another one down, uh, I think, closer, you know, closer to Wilmington. And um, they, uh, as one example, and they, um, were as busy as Pencoid, <laughs> uh, but um, there were there were a, 
group of companies, about 25, I think, 23, 24, 25, that were all merged into the American Bridge Company. And I think that's part of the story too. Um, American Bridge Company, which was ultimately then also sort of incorporated into U.S. Steel, they combined a lot of these smaller companies, uh, Pencoid included, into one company and perhaps to meet this demand more efficiently, you know, they, they, uh, they, they were um, building structures all over the country, all over the world. And, um, and all the expertise at these little plants was feeding into that, um, that, that productivity and that capability. So um, Pencoid, I think was, uh, they had unique capabilities there and then they had the, the ability to make such uh, large volumes of material that they were a central figure in, in that, um, that American bridge company initially. Right. Can we talk a little bit about some of the structures? Because before uh, I pressed record, uh, we've been talking a little bit about how Pencoid Steel went to support, uh, in particular, Frank Furnace's, uh, the Frank Furnace designed, perhaps I should say more appropriately, uh, Baltimore and Ohio train station in Philadelphia. Uh, but mm-hmm. then also just the the international dimension of this that uh as I recall from your book, Pencoid Steel makes it all the way to Japan. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that was a surprise uh, really to to learn about that aspect, uh, which um, um, maybe is more of a f- reflection of my my ignorance initially, but it, it was really uh, fun to learn about that. Yeah, they had, um, and I think maybe that was probably uh, a, a partially well, you know, there are a couple of variables there, or a couple of factors. I think that the um, the engineers at um, at Pencoid had been at least in that time frame. Maybe I'll go one one step further here. Uh, here are some of some of these uh, individuals who were associated with Pencoid. Um, they had been um, educated either in Europe or there was a significant number of um, engineer, engineering expertise that came from uh, Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute up in New York. And there were there was a connection, sort of an engineering connection, I think, within the East Coast or the, you know, the Atlantic, mid-Atlantic kind of region between a lot of these uh, people. And um, uh, for example, the um, engineer shown on the right there, uh, John uh, Waddell, he had uh, some connections at Pencoid and uh, had built some bridges with uh, their design expertise and uh, working closely uh, with them. And um, he, but he he was, I think he had a connection with um, some Jap- uh, some Japanese engineers and this was made in the 1880s, I think. There was a um, there was a a little bit of a debate, I guess, between uh, British engineers and American engineers about the best um, designs for railroad bridges. And um, the Japanese uh, railroad industry um, had, an, I think, initially gotten a lot of input from British engineers and somehow through an exchange, maybe with uh, Rensselaer and a few Japanese engineers, they uh, reconsidered some of their designs. And pretty soon a lot of American uh, engineering designs were being implemented in Japan. So there, there are a lot of, if you look through the time frame there and like the early 1890s up and through, through into the turn of the century, 19 up to maybe 1910 or so, there are um, a large number of structures that were built in Japan that were influenced by, um, partially by Pencoid engineers, but some of the other engineering uh, expertise in, in the United States through the, this kind of informal network, I think. So that that was interesting to see how some of these structures in Japan, um, which are still 
operate, still functional, still, um, you know, in their original locations and working as uh, uh, bridges and so forth. Uh, that, that's really interesting to see. But there are examples around the world. Um, Mexico, there are a number of structures in Mexico. Um, and uh, uh, I think connected with the Copper Canyon um, rail, railroad uh, area. And then um, there were some examples in Africa, uh, in Uganda, and um, also Sudan that were built in this time frame as well. Uh, so yeah, they they were um, they were able to to really establish an international reputation. It also, I think, with the U.S. Steel involvement, it involved some structures, some uh, other structures, buildings, and uh, they had a, a number of buildings that were built internationally as well, where they provided structural steel for the for the um, the internal structure of the buildings. So yeah, it, that was a that was an aspect. Like I said, it was kind of a surprise to uh, realize that they had um, this expanded in this international uh, uh, a aspect as well. Yeah. <laughs> Were there any other surprising finds? Uh, maybe some material that didn't necessarily make it into the book. Uh, you know, yeah, you know, we always like to talk a little bit about what what sort of archives you used to. So maybe we could kind of uh, wrap those two discussions into one as well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, sure. Let me uh, let, let me see here. I can um, go back a few slides here, and uh, so. Yeah, here's, uh, so uh, it is, I really found so much information, it, it was hard to decide. Um, I think that the the, um, the book, book editors were really uh, kind to me <laughs> and entertained. I had a lot of images, I think just too many initially that I wanted to include um, in the book. And um, to me, they were really interesting to me, but some of them, um, you know, maybe getting a little too far afield or or difficult to um, difficult to include in the book. So some of the some of the images um, that I enjoyed most were those with people because you you get a sense for what people actually did. Uh, you get a sense for the scale and uh, of the operations in the factory. And um, this is one. Uh, this was actually a a source that. Uh, that I found in the Hagley collections. And um, it dates back to around uh, 1902, I think, 1902, 1903. And it, it shows these uh, two workers standing on, a, on an I-beam uh, here that was destined for this uh, bridge across the Mississippi River, the Te Tebbs Bridge there. Um, shown that you know the completed bridge shown in the lower right, but they were working on this, and um, you can see all the rivets, you know, hundreds of ri rivets, literally, in this image visible, and uh, they're operating this portable uh, hydraulic riveter that that operated. Um, it was hanging from the the roof from the structural uh, beams up and within the roof there by chains. You can sort of see those in the upper right part of the, the image. And um, just going along uh, the length of this um, this beam and uh, putting putting it together, getting it ready to ship out. And uh, this one I liked. And it, the other, I sort of, uh, because the Im image is maybe a little bit difficult to see what what is part of the beam and what's part of the background and what's actually part of the riveter. I found an image of, of a similar riveter might be actually the same riveter in the upper right corner there from a journal article, engineering journal article from uh, about the same time frame that shows you what that riveter looked like. But um, anyway, I, I really like this photo. Uh, riveting was a, was a big part of the work, not only in the shop, but when when the bridge parts were shipped out to a job site, 
where they're erecting a new bridge. They had uh, riveters working in the field um, with uh, all different kinds of riveting devices um, that they were using, uh, sometimes hundreds of feet above the river, uh, hanging or positioning themselves um, where they can get at these uh, pieces and uh, for the assembly. So I, I like, anyway, I like this one. This was uh, one of the early images that I found and really got me excited about looking for more detail because this is exactly the kind of information I was, I was looking to find. Um, another, so I, I might mention um, a couple of other sources and of information that really uh, helped put together the big picture. So one, um, one such source was uh, the Hexamer general surveys that were done in, um, they, I guess they, you know, I don't know the full history, but I know that I was able to find Pencoid Hexamer surveys between the, the years of 1872 and um, 1891. And so, in that time frame, I think they they did three or four surveys, and uh, one of them is shown here as a backdrop. And um, uh, I mean, the back backdrop is the large uh, scale of the plan that you can see. It shows the buildings, um, and um, they're very very detailed. Each building is labeled. Um, may not be legible here, but I I did zoom in on one part to make a, a point in particular. Uh, but before I talk about though that, that though, the bottom part of these um, surveys is actually a, a nice uh, sketch, you know, of, of the site and what the what the buildings may have looked like. And this, again, this was really, these are really cool surveys, really nicely done uh, drawings and help you understand what happens um, or what kind of uh, details were known at the time. And you can compare, you know, you could find these for another industrial site or factory, for example, and compare the capabilities at different places. But the um, anyway, the, what I uh, wanted to focus in on with this particular um, slide is shown in the red, the red box here, if you or the red outline box, you can see the uh, letters here or the the label here, Dynamo Room. <laughs> and uh, when I first read that, I thought that's that's weird. What's a what's Dynamo Room? And it it just uh, got me kind of engaged with learning more about um, the capabilities at the plant. So that this was from uh, let's see, I think eighteen eighty seven. Yes. So at in that time frame. Dynamos were being used. They were um, a device that allowed the uh, generation of electricity. And um, that was probably the first uh, installation of electrical capability at the plant. And um, they had, you know, this was cutting edge technology that they had implemented here. And they set it up in this little uh, stone, stone walled building. Um, at the edge of the plant, so they, the dynamo room was that was a that was a big deal, and here it, it appears here this subtly in this uh, image um, or this sketch. When I when I first read that, I thought hmm, that's interesting, and then I it caused me to delve in delve in more. But the dynamo is just one example, I think, of the kinds of technology that they were aware of and tried to implement in the plant as capabilities. Um, changed and they had to they had to stay current to compete with other companies and um, and be able to uh, continue to produce uh, steel and um, structural parts for for all the projects that they're working on um, so anyway I, I like these surveys there were a number of them that were really useful in understanding um, what happened at Pencoid I, I just wanted to quickly call out a couple of others too. The, the Pennsylvania State Archives had a um, or has a collection of commercial 
uh, museum. I think it's the Philadelphia Commercial Museum collection. And within that, there are a number of images of the pencoid plant. This is an image I showed earlier too, um, that really just gives you a sense of the scale of the steel mill. But also if you look around, uh, look around on the floor of the plant, how, um, how dirty it is, you know, the, the, the working conditions were incredibly raw and uh, especially by today's standards, probably even by the standards of the 50s or the 60s, 1950s or 60s, you see that just um, uh, piles of debris everywhere and uh, people working in plain clothes in these, <laughs> in these uh, gigantic um, industrial uh, devices and so forth. It's just really fascinating to see imagery like this. And there are quite a few people in the plant on this particular day. If you look down the length there, you can probably see about 40, uh, 30 or 40 people. Uh, let's see, this one, this image is from the, uh, was from the National Archives and I liked, I liked it because it um, really shows the, the uh, conditions at night. So there aren't, there aren't many photos for obvious reasons, I think, uh, of nighttime op operations at the plant, but this one was taken around I think in 1917, and uh, you could see the reflection of the plant in the Schuylkill River there in the foreground. And um, I just thought that this must have been a typical view from across the river in, in Maniunk or Germantown the mouth, near the mouth of the Wissahickon Creek um, for people uh, to have that uh, huge plant just across the river is really something to think about. And in the same light, I'll just, this is the last image I wanted to show. This is probably the same um, or roughly the same vantage point uh, looking across the river uh, from near the mouth of the Wissahickon Creek. And this is, this image is from, was from the Lower Marion Historical Society. And again, looking at the steel mill portion of the plant and all the boats there along the river or the, the mouth of the Wissahickon, uh, for scale in the foreground. Um, but the, uh, this is a quote that my, my father brought to my attention from the um, Pennsylvania historian Cornelius Wagand from, uh, from 1942. Um, I won't read the quote, but he, he, uh, you, can read, you can read that, I think, as well as me. But um, he was commenting on how when the plant shut down, um, it got very quiet in the area. And um, although people used to complain about the sound and um, all the the action and maybe the uh, just the presence of the of the plant itself dominating the area, the locals would complain. But when the when the plant fell silent, people started missing it. <laughs> and uh, maybe not everyone missed it, but uh, it, this quote this quote got me thinking that this must have been a very loud area when the plant was fully functional. If you think about all the equipment that we've looked at in these last few minutes um, in in all of these various buildings, uh, this is some loud machinery. So um, I'm sure sure that although we look we're looking at a lot of images, and that's impressive. Uh, think about how the, the mill must have sound at the peak of its operation. And uh, it's important to keep that in mind, I think. And it's too bad we don't have some recording of what it sounded like. That would be fascinating. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't, maybe, I, maybe there is such a recording. I'm not sure, but <laughs> I haven't run across it so far. But I wanted, I wanted to just, um, you know, mention the, that, that concept of what it sounded like. It must have been very impressive. So that anyway, that gives a sense for some of the sources I I uncovered and uh, some of the some of the highlights, some things maybe that I didn't have a chance to elaborate on in the in the book as much. Um, but um, yeah, there are certainly lots of uh, sources and types of information that I 
ran across that were uh, just uh, each of them played a little part in uh, establishing the, the story and the big picture. So what did you come away with in terms of how you're understanding, and we talked about this at the start of the interview a little bit too, as we were introducing the topics, but uh, what, what did you come away with in terms of how your understanding and the way that you think about Pencoid uh, changed, grew, evolved, and what would you hope that readers of your book can come away with too? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, thanks. Thanks for the question and the opportunity. Um, yeah. Well, I guess, you know, one of the things that I think about uh, every time um, I, you know, have a chance to think more about Pencoid is uh, really the how much talent they had they had uh, working working at the plant at all different levels. Um, it it was really a diverse um, a, a place of diverse talents. You know, you had you had people who were um, specialists in making wrought iron or steel, and um, they were that was just a, a small part of the plant. They were um, associated with with that. There were chemists. There was a, a little building, for example, where they did uh, chemical analysis that was located just adjacent to the steel mill, and they had a staff in there that could analyze uh, steel for its chemical composition, and that. Uh, was something that was critical to their product. They needed to know how much carbon or how much sulfur was in the steel, the products, and uh, whether that was within the range they needed to achieve their um, their the strength or the engineering capability of of the uh, you know the struct the structural capability of their products. So that that's very specialized information. And then they had. Um, um, people who could um, uh, sample the steel, you know, get close to the steel, these crucibles of steel and, and get samples uh, to take, um, take to the chemistry building and so forth. I mean, that's just the steel mill portion. Then you think about um, some of the other operations where they had specialized expertise, uh, maybe more mechanical, uh, people who could do riveting, people who could do uh, forging of the eye bars, uh, specialists in uh, high pressure uh, technology that allowed the hydraulic um, uh, portions of the plant to operate. And uh, the, it's just a very, you know, a very extensive list. The energy uh, um, that was required to operate all this equipment, the energy needs kept increasing over time. And so they they needed to have uh, people that were uh, specialists in um, bo uh, boilers and uh, steam power, uh, electrical power, elect electrical capabilities. The, all of these uh, capabilities changed over time, over the you know the many decades they were operating there. So anyway, I think uh, uh, it's just an impressive. I think that they had so much expertise. And one thing I haven't even mentioned is that they had a, a building where all the engineers were based and the engineers were designing structures and um, uh, taking in a lot of the orders for, for new work. And um, that was a multi-floored uh, building. I think there were four or five floors in that building of people with various uh, jobs supporting um, the design uh, probably mostly bridge design at that period, but the br the bridge products were um, just uh, so numerous. So uh, anyway, that that's I think one of the the main uh, uh, aspects of Pencoid is that all all that specialized expertise was located there in the Lower Marion, Roxboro, uh, Wissahickon. Maniang Conshohocken region, and that, that's very impressive to me. Uh, well, that sort of expertise is um, 
was probably really rare in the in the country and there it was all concentrated in that little area um i think so one other um a aspect i think are the the working conditions and so that this is this is something that is well known and and um but i think it it sort of came to life for me looking at a lot of the images maybe some for example, some of the few we looked at in the past few minutes where um, the lighting conditions in the plant were not great. Uh, the, the, the plants were not particularly clean. And um, so working conditions were, were, were a challenge. And um, part of the book, I, I focus on some of the um, newspaper reports of incidents at the plant and the injuries were very common. People were um, being taken to hospitals uh, commonly, I think, because of some incident with uh, machinery or something, something happened. And that's tough to read, but you think about, again, you think about all the equipment that's operating, that was operating in the factory and that's just something that all those workers, that's, they lived with that possibility of injury. And uh, again, you know, it's unheard of today. Think, think back a uh, hundred years ago and, um, and that, that was the norm. Um, so a lot has changed since then, but I think that's something to, to keep in mind when you think about this history, how, 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 uh, severe those working conditions were and yet they made they turned out products that have lasted over a hundred years i mean the the quality of uh workmanship and product the products in general that were created here there's so many examples of uh, bridges and structures that are still um in use today uh we were we were just in uh new york city and uh, saw a few buildings there that I had read about and knew about. And then here, there we were on the street, all of a sudden realized, oh my gosh, here we are. That building right there has steel that was made 110 years ago. <laughs> and uh, yeah, anyway, it's just fun. It's fun to think about that aspect. A lot of hard work went into making some really uh, high quality products. I think that's a good point uh, to potentially end on. But before we uh, go into the playing us out phase, were there any other uh, tidbits, stories, bits of archival crumb that you uh, might be interested in sharing today that maybe didn't necessarily make it into the book? Or if there's a, a favorite section of the book that, that you found uh, to write? <laughs> Uh, well, let's see a favorite, a favorite section, um, uh, for me was, was really, um, and I, I spent just a small amount of time on this, but, um, it relates to what we were just talking about that there were some structures made and, um, they were used for their intended purpose for a long time, but then at some point, um progress happens and uh new plans are made for any particular site uh whether it's you know in a city or a bridge or uh, i mean a bridge location someplace and um plans change and the structures need to be either uh removed or modified and so i i was really surprised at how many uh examples there are of structures that were relocated and repurposed uh two two different kinds sometimes um structures were relocated they were uh, moved from um, one location they were where they were originally installed and then uh, repurposed somewhere else and are still functioning um a lot of times you see that with a pedestrian bridge so they, they may have taken a railroad bridge and moved it somewhere and, and it's now a pedestrian bridge and that 
is just uh, really, that's really cool to see the history preserved that way. Um, there are a number of examples I found like that. And then in some cases, the bridges were um, not moved. They were just um, transformed from a um, railroad bridge or automobile bridge to a pedestrian bridge, but they're still in the same spot. And um, I think that's just uh, really nice um, to preserve the history that way and allows us a story to be told. Um, and then, you know, ultimately, to me, it, you see this structure that survived all those years and still being uh, used largely the way it was intended. Um, that's nice. It's nice to see. <laughs> uh, there was not enough room to to talk about a, a lot of those structures, but they are um, they're international. There are a few examples in um, in Japan, for example, where that that's occurred, and um, and um, all around the country, uh, still finding examples. So one of, one of the things that's been difficult is uh, as a as a researcher. So when uh, when when Pencoid was merged with all these other companies into American Bridge, it became um, difficult to identify the specific contributions that might have come from Pencoid. So when you're doing uh, searches for structures um, after they became incorporated into American Bridge, it may have just been an American Bridge project. Uh, project. And so you may not know exactly which plant had contributed to that particular project unless you had access to the detailed um, drawings and documents and so forth, which it, you know might be might be possible in some cases. But um, before the before the merger, a lot of their um, products and capabilities were were documented with the name Pencoid, which is kind of a unique name. So it was made it relatively easy to find, to do searches and find information about Pencoid. So, but afterwards it became more difficult. <laughs> uh, so uh, the reason I'm mentioning this is because I think a lot of what I've found um, has been due to uh, the unique name, the unique Pencoid name. Um, and I'm guessing that there were a lot of structures that were built with a significant Pencoid contribution from uh, 1905 onwards, where uh, it's been harder to track down, you know, their their specific input. So they're what's presented in the book may be uh, a significant under underestimate or undercount of uh, the structures that are out there. Uh, so I'm always finding more. I think as structures are documented and um, word gets out that uh, people are interested in this kind of information, hey, who who built this bridge? Basic information um, that gets documented. So I, you know, since the book was published, even I think I've, I have maybe five or ten examples of additional structures I found that um, I didn't know about before. So it. The information evolves, and um, maybe that's one. Uh, the other uh, thing I wanted to mention is that um, one of the real reasons to um, put all this together is the hope that maybe people who read it and have some connection in their uh, family past to the plant, if they have uh, memories or documents or records, recollections to share, uh, to share them with your local history uh, society and, um, you know, make make sure any information gets uh, uh, passed along because it can be really critical for uh, people doing research, this kind of historical research, to get a little piece of the picture. And sometimes you may not realize that some small piece of information can make a link between multiple other pieces of information. and that to a researcher is uh, just a great, you know, a great thing if it can happen. So um, I wanted to make sure I have a chance to mention that too. The, the local history societies, I think are, are, are really um, eager for information like that.
absolutely. And uh, I think this is a good assignment for our viewers and listeners. Uh, go out and see if you can find your nearest structure uh, with pencoid steel in it. Uh, wherever you are in the world, it might be closer to you than you think it is. And That's I'd like sure. to, to thank you for putting together this book that explores the history of this manufacturing facility and, and kind of uh, makes brings those links to the forefront for anyone who wants to learn more. Yeah, you're welcome. And thank you very much for the uh, invitation to join you and, and the opportunity to, to talk more about, about Pencoid, Ben. I, I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for being here today. And for our audience now, if you'd like more Hagley History Hangouts or more information on the Center for the History of Business Technology and Society at the Hagley Museum and Library, uh, join us online. You can visit us at hagley.org. That's H-A-G-L-E-Y dot or, yeah, pardon me, dot O-R-G. Thanks. Thanks. And we'll see you again in two weeks.